Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded during the 39th Critical Care Congress in Miami, Florida. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Dr. Amelia Hopkins, MD, to discuss her latest paper published in the September 2009 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled Pediatric Critical Care Telemedicine in Rural Underserved Emergency Departments. Dr. Hopkins is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. Good morning, Dr. Hopkins. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Parker, and thank you to the Society for this opportunity. Would you please start by telling us, uh, giving us some background and an overview of your study, what you did and how you did it? Certainly. Um, Being in Vermont, we realize that there's a disparity between access to services and care for children versus the physicians that are available. So across the country, roughly 20 to 25% of children live in rural areas as defined by the U.S. Department of Transportation and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Yet less than 3% of trained pediatric intensivists practice in those areas. So we know that there's a disparity. We also know from multiple studies in multiple areas that there is improvement in outcomes when critically ill children are managed in tertiary care medical centers by people who are appropriately trained. So knowing that, we have sought for some time to try to improve the care that some of our children receive. So the University of Vermont and Vermont Children's Hospital, which is affiliated with Fletcher Allen, um, serves approximately a million with 19 counties in Vermont, upstate New York. Some of the hospitals that we get patients from are as far away as three hours or more each way, and that's in good weather. So, you know, with lake effect snow and coming across the lake and whatnot, sometimes you can look at seven to eight hour transport times. So, as I said, we've been looking at ways that we can try to improve that. So, in 2006, via a grant from the U.S. Department of Transportation, we were able to implement a telemedicine program at 10 emergency departments. We've now increased that number. And the study that we looked at was simply a descriptive study getting questionnaires from both ourselves, the intensivist, and there are three of us in Vermont, um, as well as from the referring providers in terms of how satisfied they were with the consult, whether or not they felt the consult improved care. It's a purely descriptive study. A little bit about the study that we did and why. Can you tell us a little bit about your telemedicine setup? How did it work? Sure. And I am very appreciative to the, quote, techies in our program, Harry and Steve, who help run all of the equipment. Um, We have polycam units, polycom units, um, that run on a combination of ISDN phone lines. And then in the last few months, we've also transitioned to an internet-based service, which is actually much more cost-effective as well. Um, At the time of the study, we were running over ISDN lines. And the telemedicine units are in each of the, at the time of the study, 10, and now I think we're up to 13 sites in the area. And we also have a unit in the hospital as well as in the homes of all of our intensivists and our one pediatric trauma surgeon as well. So we can access that immediately when we get a call from the outside hospital that there's a critical child who needs, needs our services. So what did you find when you distributed this questionnaire? 
So some sort of interesting findings. So we had, a, of course, 100% return rate on our end because we were all harassing each other to do the to do the surveys. We had roughly a 65% return rate from the referring providers, so not 100%. For the vast majority of folks, both on our end and their end, um, they're very pleased with the ease of the telemedicine. The equipment is easy to use. We had very few technical complications. The most common technical complication which still happens is that occasionally the units at the outside emergency departments get shut off. So there's always a light blinking and sometimes the camera moves and people freak out and turn it off. So that's usually easily remedied by calling and saying your unit's off, can you turn it back on? Other than that, people were quite pleased with the, with the service itself. One of the most interesting findings that I found was that as the referring provider, we really felt that telemedicine benefited the patients far more than telephone consults in approximately 90% of the cases that we um, performed. And the referring providers only felt that it was better than telephone in about 55%. And another 27.5% felt the telephone would have been just as fine as, as telemedicine. And, you know, we sort of thought, why is there this discrepancy? So um, as we wrote in our article, and then um, Dr. Marson also from Susie Davis, um, wrote in the editorial, it could just be that we're sort of caught up in this new technology and we think it's great. Um, the other thought that we had is that potentially the referring providers and the consultants have very different goals. So the ref- referring providers primarily want to know, what do I need to do with this child? And there's a very wide variety of providers at the referring emergency departments. Um, many are internal medicine trained. We have some family docs. We have some very small sort of more urgent care centers that may have just a nurse practitioner or PA staffing it. Um, so they may not necessarily understand the differences in the recommendations that we're making by telephone or, or telemedicine. Um, they just want to know, what do you want me to do? What do I need to do for this child? And how do I facilitate transport and get this child to your facility? Versus our goals and objectives are to make sure that the child's getting the best care possible, um, also to help facilitate transport. Um, and also a, a third aspect is to triage appropriately. Is this a child who really needs to come to the ICU? Is this a child who could be seen in the emergency department? Or is this a child who could go directly to the ward? So those are our goals. And we think that there may be a discrepancy because um, of those goals and objectives for the two different providers. So this allows you to see the child and see the environment as well as um get the information verbally that you normally get over the phone from the referring physician. Absolutely. So we have um, a camera. They can see and hear us, and we can see and hear them. Um, as the referring provider, we control the camera itself. Um, it has very, very good resolution, so I can easily see if a child's retracting. I could see the intercostal retractions. I can easily see nasal flaring. You can easily zoom into the monitor and see the vital signs yourself so you don't have to constantly ask what's the heart rate, what's the blood pressure, what's the SAT. Um, you can do that yourself just by zooming in and out. Um, you can also control the, the volume. So if you, you know, I can easily hear Strider and what that sounds like. So it's, it's very interesting. How did this change the recommendations that you might make based just on telephone information? So uh, in in my opinion, and again, unfortunately, this is sort of an anecdotal (laughs) report. Um, In my opinion, there are lots of recommendations that we make via telemedicine that we just wouldn't make over the telephone. I think the most important has to do with intubation. you know, as a pediatric intensivist who sometimes gets calls from outside hospitals, you know that if you have a question of intubation, 
generally, especially with a long transport time, you're going to err on the side of protecting the airway, and you're going to say, go ahead and intubate this child. So we actually had 12 cases in which intubation was in question, where the provider said, this child looks to be in distress, should I intubate? And interestingly, seven times we said, go ahead and intubate. And again, it's, it's nice. We can actually supervise the intubation directly, help them select the correct equipment and the correct medication, watch the actual procedure. Um, and 12, in 12 cases, we actually said, no, this child doesn't need to be intubated, where I think over the telephone, if I've got a provider who says, should I intubate this child, I'm going to say, go ahead and do it if you think the child needs to be intubated. So again, although this wasn't designed to look at outcomes, I think that that potentially could have saved quite a bit of morbidity and mortality. Can you give us an example of the kind of uh, recommendations that you were able to make that you would not have been that might be different from what you would have made over the phone? Absolutely. We have noticed changes in bag mask technique where they haven't had a good seal on the bag and they're not getting good chest rise and we've had them alter that. Um, on a number of occasions we've been able to see that the chest hasn't been rising appropriately and then notice that the pop-off valve on the self-inflating bag wasn't activated and said, hey, close the pop-off valve, and then you can see the chest rise, um, both in our report as well as some other anecdotal reports in both pediatrics and adults. We have numerous times noticed right main stem innovation far before the chest x-ray by saying the left chest isn't rising, where's your ET tube, you know, tell me the depth, move it back a little bit. Um, there was one case where one of my partners during the laryngoscopy was do doing what I described, looking at the vital signs and noticed that the child was desaturating and becoming bradycardic and said, why don't you stop and bag the kid up, give some atropine. Um, so that was also, a, I think, a pertinent thing that you just would never know if you were on the telephone. Um, You're absolutely right. You yeah. never could do that kind of thing no. just by telephone. I had a very poignant example early on when I started um, my career at University of Vermont was a small child with a very large chest mass on the left. And the initial phone call, I think the child's about 18 months old, the initial phone call was that I had a child with severe respiratory distress and hypoxia with a left-sided pneumonia and whiteout. And, you know, this was one of the questions where they were referring providers that I think this child needs to be intubated for transport. This child was coming from over three hours away each way, so we're talking about a six-hour transport. And at the time, the referring facility still had plain films. And I said, can you show me the x-ray? And it was amazing quality. He just held the x-ray up to the light, and I zoomed my camera in. And I was able to see the left-sided whiteout, but I could also see that there was significant mediastinal shift to the right with significant tracheal deviation. And now the child was sitting in the mom's arms, so I actually hung up the telemedicine because I felt a little bit uncomfortable saying this in front of the mom, especially not being 100% certain. And I called the ER physician back on the phone and I said, I, I think that's a mass. I don't think that's a pneumonia. And with the shift, I think it's safer not to intubate this child. And again, with telephone consult saying he had a left-sided pneumonia with a whiteout and respiratory distress, I would have said, go ahead and intubate. And you know that child could have died. Well, it's pretty clear how telemedicine can be um, helpful. What kinds of settings do you think it could be useful? So again, we primarily use it um, because of our rural environment and the fact, as I said, that the transport times are long. Um, although I've wondered, and I haven't seen many studies outside of trauma, and the military also uses telemedicine quite a bit, so there are some interesting studies there. But it, it makes me sort of wonder, even in urban in environments where you know, even a quick local transport still might be an hour, knowing that for things like septic shock, 
and trauma that that first hour, that quote golden hour, really can make a difference. I'm just wondering if as this technology, the price comes down and the ease of using it becomes easier and easier. I just wonder if even in urban environments, it may become more standard of care. You mentioned that the there are different kinds of referring physicians calling you, and I've mm-hmm. certainly had the experience of having uh, docs in some of the ERs that refer to us not be able to give me over the phone a accurate picture of what the child looks like. And I think you, you made reference to the golden hour for sepsis. I think sepsis is one of the things that um, sometimes is underappreciated in children. Seems It seems to me that this kind of technology potentially could be useful even in um, less rural settings than yours. Absolutely. And I, I you know, have a long list of observations that we made. There have been multiple times where you can actually see the perfusion of the child and see that their extremities are still mottled and cool. You can see the low urine volume in the Foley. And you know, usually what we do is watch the child until our transport team is there. Um, we frequently, I think in about a quarter of the cases, we also supervised while the transport team was there and serving as the medical control for the transport team. You can talk to them and talk to them directly about what's going on with the child. Um, so, you know, being able to follow that and be there the whole time um, has also been helpful. We've also, um, since this paper was published, we've also done a number of resuscitations as well where the child has died at the outside hospital. And again, if you're, you know, an internist or a family doc, to run a pediatric code and actually call it is very, very difficult. So to have us on the other line for the entire code to help them go through the PALS algorithm and know that we've done everything appropriately and tell them when it's time to stop is very I think, helpful as well. I, I think that would be helpful. I think uh, you're exactly correct that, that calling a code on a child is a very difficult thing to do, and even more so for people who don't normally take care of children. Uh, and I think sometimes pediatric codes go on way too long. I think absolutely, uh, if you've gone through all of the appropriate steps, it um, puts you in a better position to make a, a to guide the people at the scene and help them make a better decision. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I don't think so. I look forward to ongoing studies. I think that we may be able to collaborate with some other centers and potentially do some more outcomes-based studies to evaluate this further. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you. We have been speaking today with Dr. Amelia Hopkins about the paper Pediatric Critical Care Telemedicine in Rural Underserved Emergency Departments, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in September 2009. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.
Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.